It's true what they say about New Orleans. So it has this character, depending on where exactly in the South you grow up, as a very important place, but one that's like kind of borderline forbidden. A pair of tour guides share what they love about their city, where great hardship and great joy have lived side by side for centuries. They'll set us straight on what's Creole and what's Cajun and recommend neighborhoods to visit for the lively music, food, and people that have been making New Orleans feel special for more than 300 years. This is a city that wants to preserve its culture and has such a unique culture when you're looking at it in regards to the rest of the United States. The next time you're at a symphony, take a glance at the audience around you. We've got 2,500 people sitting in a concert hall in complete silence going through this emotional journey together. A young conductor tells us about his role as guest maestro at venues around the world. Come along as we explore the work of the conductor and the neighborhoods of New Orleans. It's Travel with Rick Steves. He's conducted the orchestra in Baltimore, Seattle, St. Louis, Nashville, Rochester, Amarillo, Spartanburg, Sao Paulo, and even at Carnegie Hall. Maestro Lee Mills shares his enthusiasm for classical music in a little bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. But our first stop is New Orleans, in the company of a pair of local walking tour guides to show us what makes their city a real cultural treasure chest. New Orleans is an important port city where everything and everyone that comes down the Mississippi River for more than 300 years has met the world. That gives New Orleans a spicy blend of cultures, religion, languages, and food that you won't find anywhere else. Joining us for a walk around New Orleans are local guides Sandy Hester and Andrew Ferrier, They work with free tours by foot New Orleans to show visitors what a -a one-of-a-kind place it really is. Hey, Sandy and Andrew, thanks for being here. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Boy, that is quite a statement that everything that flows down the river and everything that goes up the river goes through New Orleans. That really puts New Orleans in a central position, doesn't it? It absolutely does. You know, the, the moment when New Orleans becomes part of a French colony is this incredibly presumptuous claim of the entire Mississippi River Valley by somebody standing around where New Orleans is today. This fellow LaSalle just sticks down a cane and says, this henceforth is Louisiana, even though he'd never seen the vast majority of it, not knowing that what he claimed covered, you know, half of the modern United States and then some and a little slice of Canada. By the way, when he comes back, he he misses the river and gets shipwrecked in Texas. <laughs> oh, no. And he missed the whole thing. I didn't even realize the whole uh, definition of Louisiana Purchase was pinned to New Orleans as the place that everything uh, drained out of. It was what the United States went to Napoleon looking for was strictly what they called the Isle of Orleans, which was this little bend in the river that was effectively surrounded by water. It was the only thing that the United States was interested in. And Napoleon, in need of war financing, said all or nothing. You know, that makes New Orleans, in so many ways, the most unique American city. One thing to keep in mind with New Orleans when people come here and they're they're always so shocked about everything that they see that's so different from the rest of the United States is is that you're dealing with something called the geography of tolerance because you have so many different people coming in to this incredibly important port, people from all walks of life, from religions, that you have to interact with them and you have to sort of earn a living off of them. And then you kind of get less of a narrow world view than what you might see in a landlocked area before the advent of modern transportation. 
And that's kind of the background of it. You also get, as a visitor, this step into a place where you have no understanding necessarily of that being the ingredients. You just have this feeling of distinctiveness. When you walk into Jackson Square, one of the first things that a visitor usually sees you're looking at this Latin American style city square that has a Catholic church right in the middle of it and like city halls off to the side, kind of tucked away in these hybrid French Spanish buildings that you'll never see the like of anywhere else. And there's a statue of Andrew Jackson in the middle of it all. And a lot of what we get to do is put that in some context and give it some details. Well, that is the whole rationale for having a good guide to understand it. Um, the complex mix, the poignant and historic mix that that makes New Orleans so unique. How do you do that? I mean, give me just a a real quick thumbnail lay of the land, both geographically and culturally. Well, geographically, they missed the boat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they really couldn't have picked a worse spot. Uh, It was just a, a sinking swamp land full of mosquitoes and diseases. And it was what one historian has called like just an impossible site, you know, and as you move through the more modern era, it becomes known as the necropolis of the South. So as far as the geography goes, um, yeah. The the necropolis of the South because it's a disadvantaged location has caused so many people to meet an early death. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you first get here, not only are you contending with mosquitoes, but also you're contending with hurricanes and the Mississippi River overflowing its banks, standing water, poor sanitation, so lots of diseases, mm. cholera, dysentery, malaria, typhoid, and, of course, yellow fever are all taking its toll on the population from the very beginning. Jeez, and I thought it was Mardi Gras and jazz and, and, and <laughs> I mean, booze. It really makes some sense out of this, like, <laughs> live for today, enjoy yourself right now kind of mentality because it is very much a place where, like, your tomorrows are not guaranteed Oftentimes, people were also in the game of briefly passing through. But for those that lived here for any length of time, either you kind of leaned in hard and had a whole lot of fun, or you found a way to really, like, cut your losses. There were, among immigrants to New Orleans in the 19th century, if you hadn't lived through a yellow fever epidemic, there were business connections you couldn't make, there were marriages you couldn't have, there was this whole kind of community transition when someone knew you had an epidemic under your belt versus when you didn't. These are such a huge part really? of the city's cultural history. Well, even even the architecture is built around those diseases because they were always unclear as to what caused them, whether or not they were communicable or whether or not they were being spread by something known as the miasma or bad air. So when you're walking around in something like the French Quarter and you're seeing businesses on the ground floor and places for people to live up top, it's because they're hoping that as you slept and entered into that weakened state, you were getting up above the bad air. Ah, so if you wanted to uh, minimize your chances during a pandemic, which we've all been thinking about lately, sure. you'd wanna, you, you would think, well, if I get out of the bad air, I'll go upstairs and maybe I'll have more ventilation. Same with the people who built the Garden District, which alongside the French Quarter is very much our kind of other New Orleans 101 neighborhood. The notion there was they saw the French Quarter, this really tightly packed Latin neighborhood that had shared walls and enclosed courtyards. And they were like, all right, I'm going to have a giant yard surrounded by a fence. That's the garden. And they were going to isolate themselves from everybody else. Ah, What did they do in the course of that is put big puddles in front of their yards and breed mosquitoes. So, God, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides to New Orleans right now are Sandy Hester and Andrew Ferrier. We're learning how to survive a pandemic over the centuries in a city that I think is the most interesting city to visit in this entire country, if you ask me. 
Uh, Andy and Sandy are both part of a crew from Free Tours by Foot New Orleans, which offers themed walking tours of the city. Their website is freetoursbyfoot.com, and you can click right on through to New Orleans if you're curious about traveling there. Hey, Andrew and Sandy, let's just talk about some of the, you you mentioned New Orleans 101. Uh, When you go to New Orleans, you hear the word Creole and you hear the word Cajun. What does that refer to, just in a nutshell for us? So Creole can mean slightly different things depending on the context that you hear it in. It can be a personal identity. It can describe language. It can describe music, food. The kind of core meaning that goes back to New Orleans's colonial beginnings is the idea of the people who were born in Louisiana versus the ones who weren't. And in many contexts, it didn't matter actually what your your parentage was, although most people who use that term with themselves were going to come from the combination French, Spanish, and or West African background that was the majority of people who lived there. But you can find arguments through the ages for like the children of Germans should be considered Creoles, etc. The way that those things mash together in the past and in the present is into what most famously for our visitors are these culinary combinations. So you can imagine like a Spanish person coming to Louisiana with a taste for paella, say, as the food of their nostalgia, who one day wants that, has to ask a West African enslaved cook to try to make it in a language that they don't really share. That cook is going to try to make something sort of like it, using Louisiana ingredients. So you get a Spanish idea made by a West African person with Louisiana stuff, and that's going to be the mess that we call jambalaya. So food becomes a really easy lens on the concept of Creole, but it applies differently depending on which different piece of local culture you're looking at. So it's it's just the unique slice of the local culture. It goes under the label Creole then. In the broadest sense, yeah. yeah. That's, that's how a lot of people would yeah. understand it today. What about Cajun? So Cajun is actually coming in from uh, when France loses Canada and the Acadians or Canadians, Cajuns, are going to make their way back down here to another French Catholic colony. They don't typically tend to settle in mass, though, in New Orleans, though some of them will. But they often went further south and further west of here into what are now typically referred to as Cajun parishes where they were isolated and where, though it's fading now, there is still the remnants of sort of a 17th century French language being spoken. I didn't realize that the whole concept of Cajun is sort of like cultural refugees going from that once French-speaking area. And Cajun mm-hmm. comes from the word Canadian? Uh, Acadian. Acadian. Yeah. Acadian. Yeah, so Acadian, 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 Cajun. Well, so. That's why we need guides, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, this is all my life. I've heard the word Cajun and I never, and now it makes beautiful sense to me. Our guides to New Orleans on Travel with Rick Steves are Andrew Ferrier and Sandy Hester. They lead walking tours for free tours by foot New Orleans. Sandy is an artist and writer with a master's in history. She's lived in New Orleans for more than 25 years now. Andrew is a writer and performer from a small town upriver and produces many of their walking tour videos on YouTube. He moved to New Orleans a year before Hurricane Katrina flooded 80% of the city. Their website is freetoursbyfoot.com, behind the link to New Orleans. I want to cover some of the cliches, the famous symbols of New Orleans. Sure. You got your uh, Bourbon Street, you got your jazz musicians, you got your street magicians, you got your voodoo practitioners, you got your purple and gold Mardi Gras beads. How important it is to know all about that stuff? What what should we understand about the, the things that people already know? when they're going to visit the city. 
I think it's important to understand that they are all things that have a real currency in town, but showing up with the notion that you already understand them is a, a, a thing that tourists often do to kind of pass for local. And it's it's admirable. It's um it's tough to pass while you're here. So anyone who ever comes to New Orleans and says Nolans kind of instantly identifies themselves as someone who's here for the first time. They'll be wearing Mardi Gras beads <laughs> when it's not Mardi Gras. <laughs> and it is there are these many things that in the right context are extremely earnest. And beads, I mean, if you're at a Mardi Gras parade, Beads are a big deal, even to people who live here, for about five seconds as they fly through the air. And then you catch it, and then it becomes plastic again. But there is this kind of instant of incredible value it has. It's if you keep wearing it after that that it starts to become suspicious. It ends up in our attics, and we joke that it's the reason New Orleans is actively sinking. Ah, so many beads <laughs> up in the attic. That's So there's certain things you got to be careful that if you embrace what you think is the local culture, it marks you as a tourist that doesn't know what the no- local culture is. We are a huge tourist central, and I think with occasional exceptions, people in New Orleans really understand that our kind of intersectional character is not only how an awful lot of the city lives, but it's also our history is that we've always been a place where lots of different people crossed paths. And so there tends to be a lot of appreciation for new perspectives and new people coming into town. But there's nothing wrong with being naive. There's nothing wrong with not already knowing. Just, just be just honest. As long as that's yeah. the truth that you're telling. We get recommendations for neighborhoods to explore in New Orleans in a minute. And in a bit, we'll meet an energetic young conductor who might soon be the guest maestro at an orchestra near you. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Every city likes to think it's unique, but being located where the Mississippi River works its way into the Gulf of Mexico provides New Orleans with a particularly fertile cultural mix. Sandy Hester and Andrew Ferrier host walking tours of the city's neighborhoods. They're with us now on Travel with Rick Steves to take you behind the loud tourist zone of the French Quarter and parade you deep into the New Orleans that they've come to love. Now, both of you grew up somewhere else uh, in the South, and you moved to New Orleans later on in life, and you probably didn't move there for the beads or for the uh, voodoo (laughs) practitioners or for Bourbon Street. Why? What was it about New Orleans, touristy as it is, that made you decide you wanted to be locals? Um, I think for me, when I first visited the city, uh, it was the appreciation of its past. Hmm. It was the preservation of its buildings and of its history, though having educated myself, I've since learned that not all of that was the correct preservation of history, but still, <laughs> it was trying. And that meant that meant a lot to me. And still means a lot to me that this is a city that wants to preserve its culture and that it has such a unique culture when you're looking at it in regards to the rest of the United States. Andrew, what made you stay in New Orleans? Yeah. So I'm from rural Louisiana, just within a couple hours drive of New Orleans. So I've been coming to the city my whole life. And it's a strange combination when you come from a small town that New Orleans is both. It's a place you go for educational stuff. You do field trips and go to museums and you also go there and you see your parents cut loose in this way that they never do at home. So it has this character, depending on where exactly in the South you grow up, as a very important place, but one that's like kind of borderline forbidden Ah. And being able, you know, I, I, I was somebody who uh, colored a little outside the lines for the size of town that I came from, loved the place, but not yeah. necessarily a place to stay and finding a city that encouraged a pretty intense kind of individuality. I think we both colored outside of the lines. <laughs> hey, well, New Orleans is a place to color outside of the lines. I love that idea that as a little kid, 
you knew that New Orleans was a place your mom and dad would go to, you know, let loose. <laughs> I won't say that I saw anything too much of the, the Bourbon Street cliche, right. but you could feel that the energy was different. Hey, guys, let's just paint a real kind of vivid but brief picture of the different neighborhoods that people will be, you know, wanting to sort through. We don't have as much time as we like when we visit, and we have to be select. I just want to talk about the top five or six neighborhoods and get a sense of why I might go there. How about the Garden District? So the Garden District is kind of, it's usually the second impression after the French Quarter, usually on a first trip, but not the very first thing you do. It can be a relief from the kind of social intensity of the quarter. The quarter tends to be crowded and really eventful. And it also is this sort of early answer, maybe even kind of rejection of the French Quarter. So when New Orleans becomes American for the first time in 1803, your Anglos coming down from the Northeast who are here to make a buck, seeing the French Quarter as this sort of strange other more than the welcome other that it's seen as today. And they really set up redundancy in every place that they can. The Creoles have a canal, they dig a canal, etc. Uh-huh. So you end up with a what today is our business district as the first American neighborhood. The Garden District is one of the American neighborhoods that follows soon after it. And these are captains of industry. New Orleans was the commercial city in the United States. Good three quarters of the U.S.'s millionaires lived along the lower Mississippi in the mid-19th century. So in those years building a huge mansion that took up a quarter of a block in the Garden District and secluding yourself there after work was the way to go. So the streetcar that runs from the quarter to there was a way to commute between work and home. Visiting the neighborhood today, you see mansions, for the most part, it's very residential still to this day. God, I, you know, Andrew, I want, I want to take one of your guided walks. That just sounds fascinating. Hey, <laughs> now, Sandy, another neighborhood people know about but need to decide if it's worth their time is Trim A. Tell us about that. Treme is like the cultural heartbeat of New Orleans. It is the oldest continuously occupied black neighborhood in the United States. It's the birthplace of jazz. Um, Jazz is also going to lead to the birth of rock and roll. Rock and roll starts adjacent to Treme. To this day, if you come to New Orleans and you educate yourself on Mardi Gras Day and get off Bourbon Street and go into that neighborhood, you'll see some amazingly unique things unfolding like the running of the Skull and Bone Gangs, which is incredible, or the Mardi Gras Indians. They refer to themselves as the Black Indians. Um, There's also a lot of beautiful architecture in that area as well. But it is like walking into still a very Afro-Caribbean section of the city. Wow, that sounds interesting. There's so many dimensions to the city. Andrew, take me to the the district called Bayou St. John. So Bayou St. John, while the French Quarter is the original neighborhood, Bayou St. John is where the French colonial project really starts. Your first land grants are out there along this bayou, which a bayou is a a river-like body of water. And in this case, it's a a long, narrow waterway that reaches from what we call mid-city out into Lake Pontchartrain. So it's a way of getting around the area without necessarily relying on the Mississippi. This is what French colonists were really looking for is a way not to rely on the lower Mississippi, which is really treacherous. And the indigenous people of the area had already set up shop in Hmm. today's French Quarter with ways of traveling along this bayou and natural ridges that got them into their trading area, the French Quarter. So Bayou St. John as a neighborhood today falls along this kind of strange grid of ancient indigenous trails, things that have been in use for a millennium or so. And then it also is this, it's centered around this big waterway that is a really beautiful natural area today, but was the industrial waterway of the United States 
in the later part of the 19th century for so quite a while. So much history. Did, now, did uh, all of this distinct history and these, the vividness of these different quarters, did it survive Katrina or did Katrina kind of like a etch-a-sketch board just shake everything and make it kind of start all the same? All the neighborhoods we've mentioned so far are pretty high elevated, except for many parts of the Treme. So the French Quarter, the Garden District, and most of Bayou St. John, by virtue of proximity with water, which means high elevation in New Orleans, fared relatively well where flooding is concerned. Oh, that's that's good. Now, there were districts that were famously hit by the flooding, and there's, there was actually disaster tourism where you could go to the Fifth Ward and see rebuilding and and help communities out with a donation and, and gain an empathy for the horrific, you know, event of Katrina. Uh, is that still going or is that sort of old news now? To my knowledge, um, I believe that the city ended up banning most of the disaster tourism, though there are still some tour buses, I think, that will take you down into the Lower Nine, then they're not supposed to do that. Right. It's ultimately what residents of the Lower Ninth Ward wanted. There was a lot of welcome in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and really for years that followed of this very large hands-on volunteer effort. But on the other hand, people who strictly wanted to go down there and look, that was a lot less welcome as this neighborhood was going through the the less uh, publicized portion of its recovery yeah. years after the storm. And really, that's still ongoing. Yeah, because that was a powerful part of my visit. When I did go there, I had a wonderful guide and had a good uh, education there. Sandy Hester and Andrew Ferrier are guides for free tours by Foot New Orleans. They're joining us from the studios of our affiliate WWNO right now on Travel with Rick Steves. They also host YouTube videos of their many different walking tour itineraries. We provide links to their work in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, you guys are both um, tour guides for a company called Free Tours. And of course, they're not free tours. You do it to make money. How does uh, Free Tours work from a business point of view for the travelers who are curious? From the traveler end, it's a pretty simple sales pitch. So free is what it is on the front end. And then once you've taken the tour, it's pay what you will. So folks can pay whatever they assess it to have been worth. We share the fact of what the going rates are in town and people can do that or they can do what they think it's worth or what they're capable of. From our end, it's you know the business. It actually becomes a, a surprisingly really functional and successful model that treats the guides really well. Yeah, I, w- I would definitely agree with that. I have been a tour guide for about 18 years now, and this is hands down the best clientele that I have ever dealt with. Hmm. So people sign up on this tour and it's free, but they understand you're expected to tip. And you have that option, I guess, to tip high or low, depending on how the experience was. Is, is that part of the, the game? You've got to do really good. And if, you're, if some guide is more entertaining and engaging, they'll make more money than some guys who's disappointing people. I mean, it, it's definitely a sing for your supper. I mean, I, I learned a long time ago that it, you can't just be delivering dry facts. If if you're making them laugh throughout the entire tour, yeah. then they're having a good time. And and yeah, hopefully, I mean, that is the goal. I mean, it's not just that right. you, you get money to take home, but you genuinely hope that they have a good time when they're on the tour. How long is the tour? Hour and 45 to two hours. All right. How many people generally? The city legally caps us around 28. And we will often aim a little bit below that for kind of an yeah. ideal crowd. And then circumstances will drive it lower still some seasons. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the tour, if I'm joining your tour, what are you going to tell me is the standard tip? So we're often in touch in advance to let people know that the going rate for a tour in town is about $25. 
and that the scale slides up or down from there. People take a $25 tour and then tip on top of it. People uh-huh. give us a, a figurine from their hometown sometimes. You end up with a really like <laughs> you end up with stories like about what people have decided pay what you will means. Yeah. But ultimately I think the the value proposition for us is that there's not middlemen. So when money is changing hands in advance of a tour happening, it often means that a, a sales agent whether that's a hotel concierge or right. a, a desk agent is involved and often is getting a cut. No one is recommending us, but the people who leave us reviews online or the people who a traveler knows personally who recommend it to them. So, And, and I think that is a good distinction that you just made, Andrew. You know, sometimes if a concierge is recommending a particular tour, it does not necessarily mean that they've walked on that tour. Or that they're even oh, no, familiar they're just necessarily with that company's guides. Right. There's, a, I think that's an unfortunate thing. When somebody's in a position to give advice and what shapes their advice is what kind of a kickback they're going to get, that's just not doing a very conscientious job. You know, there's a lot of free tours in Europe, and they're an interesting business model because the, the crowd is generated by a company that advertises, and the company has to make its money. So let's say 40 people gather under the, under the bell tower at 10 o'clock in the morning in this city in Germany, and the owner of the company or one of his people will take a photograph of the people who gather, and then the guide is charged two euros for every person that gathered. So the company has already made 100 bucks, and uh, you've got to then really hustle uh, because you owe the tour company that two euros per person that they generated for you. And if you entertain people and get on an average more than two euros, you actually make some money. But you could conceivably lose money on the tour because you have to pay per head for those people generated for the tour. Is that how yours works also? Our business model is really similar to that. And I will say, like, I have never had to wonder what would happen if... I walked away empty-handed because I have never walked away empty-handed. But that's how the company gets its cut. That's how the company stays in business. Correct, yes. So um, although in in our case, no one's looming over us taking a photo unless someone has a drone that I don't know about. So (laughs) it's very trust-based, both between us and the people who employ us and between us and the guests. And I, I, as a customer, really appreciate that trust when I travel. I tend to take pay-what-you-will tours, and I find a lot of people traveling, even if the model is something new to them appreciate being trusted as well. And it is a sliding scale where some people who genuinely can't afford that are able to afford a tour and and tip what they can afford. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of students come and join us and they have great questions and they're very engaged and you get to know you really like made somebody's day and that has some value too. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Andrew Ferrier and Sandy Hester. They're guides for free tours by foot, New Orleans and Let's just finish it off by uh, helping our listeners to think, hey, I'm in New Orleans. I've got some meeting I have to go to in the morning, but I got my afternoon free and my evening free, and I've never been there before. I'm going to let each of you be my guide for a suggestion on one thing to do. And, Sandy, I'd like for you to know, tell us about the best afternoon activity. And, Andrew, let's let you take us around after dark. Just briefly, Sandy, what would you be sure I experience in my free afternoon in New Orleans? Wow, gosh, that's putting me on the spot a little bit. There's so much to do. Um, Usually when I have a guest on my tour ask me that question, I like to get a little bit of knowledge as to what they're interested in. But New Orleans is a premier city for a lot of museums. Uh, The Cabildo in the heart of the French Quarter is our history museum. There is also the premier World War II museum. We have a New Orleans Museum of Art. We have a lot of historic homes that you can tour as well. 
even just something as simple as, you know, getting on on a boat and riding up and down the Mississippi Hmm. to have like afternoon drinks on the river is lovely. The through line I'm hearing is get indoors. <laughs> yeah, that also depends on the time of year okay. that you come. If it's August, yeah. g- God help you. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's I've, uh, it's hot and and sticky. That's for sure. But it sounds like there's plenty of good indoor uh, attractions. And okay, Andrew, Sandy took us into the museums. We got our high culture. Now it's after dark. We have one night in New Orleans, and I'm your I'm your guest. Yeah, so someone who wants to spend an evening on Bourbon Street does not need the help of a guide to experience and enjoy that. Bourbon Street generally renders us completely inaudible. So offering an alternative, the the next thing that visitors who come here a few times will tend to discover is that immediately outside the French Quarter in the neighborhood that we've referred to as the Marigny, there is an area called Frenchman Street, which is an example of kind of a transitional space between tourist-centered music areas in town and the ones that pander primarily to the people who live here. So New Orleans is famous for distinctive music, traditional jazz, the many iterations on jazz that may have started somewhere else but are also very much appreciated here, blues, funk, brass bands, all of these different styles. Frenchman is a tight little two or three block area where you can find between the street and the bars along it all of those forms of music happening oftentimes at once. It can be pretty crowded and somewhat Bourbon Street-like, on the weekends, but on a weekday night, I would 100% let someone enjoy the sunset hour down there, the transition from traditional jazz into the, the funkier, more electric part of the evening. That is something I wouldn't miss. Nice. And Frenchman Street sounds like it would be a little less sloppy version of Bourbon Street for somebody who wants to get away from it the It welcomes tourist. all kinds. A sober <laughs> person is often not going to enjoy Bourbon Street very much, but a sober person can have a lot of fun on Frenchman with the occasional collision with somebody who's having a different That kind of fun. is great. You guys are such good teachers. It's been so nice <laughs> to talk to you. Andrew Ferrier and Sandy Hester, both of you guides for a company called Free Tours by Foot. Best wishes with your guiding and happy travels. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you. I've been to Cuba, South America way. I've been to Euro, Mexico is okay. Over in France, the chicks are really fine. I get my kicks below the Mason Dixon line. Going back home, T9, they never move. Will I roam? Gonna get my fill of gumbo feeling, cause New Orleans is my home. You can share your travel impressions and memories with us in the form of a haiku poem. There's a link to send us your original haiku in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here are a few we thought you might enjoy. Starla Little, from Beaufort, South Carolina, writes that her family is getting ready to take a road trip. She says, we love seeing where the open road takes us. She sends us this haiku in anticipation of their vacation. Summertime road trip. Load up the car with children. Fill tank. Keep driving. Priscilla Morin from San Diego writes us this cautionary note after a trip to a famous site on the U.S.-Canadian border. Niagara Falls. Antsy three-year-old daughter. Honeymoon on hold. Rick Hyde of Hiram, Ohio, sends us a concise home state brag in the form of a haiku. Three syllables from just four letters? It's more than you think, Ohio. And Neil Ruddy from Carlisle, Iowa, writes us a trio of haiku about his weekend in Austin, Texas. Best people watching in Austin. Broken spoke on a Saturday night. Singing cream at free highball karaoke sounds like tired starlings. 
Austin never met geezer singers, tattoos, or dogs it didn't like. It's always a treat to hear an orchestra performance in a city you're visiting. We'll check in with a young conductor whose travels take him to lead orchestras in a wide variety of cities. Lee Mills joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. It can add so much to your enjoyment when you learn the backstory behind great pieces of classical music. A few years ago, I put together a presentation called Europe, a Symphonic Journey, about Romantic-era music that boosted national identities in seven European countries in the 19th century. It was thrilling to work with live orchestras as they demonstrated how works written by Grieg, Smetana, Strauss, Berlioz, Elgar, Wagner, and Verdi honored their nationalities during what were often turbulent times. The conductor for our presentations with both the Seattle Symphony and the Minnesota Orchestra in the Twin Cities was the young and energetic Lee Mills. I've asked Lee to join us today on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about his career as a frequent guest conductor with orchestras all over the country. And speaking of his travels, we're actually his last stop before he finishes packing up a U-Haul and continuing his conducting career from Southern California. Lee, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to be here. Yeah, and it's nice to see you not wearing a tuxedo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Kind of a funny thing, isn't it? You just—that's part of your uniform when you're when you're performing. Yeah, it is. But uh, you know, we're on the radio, so nobody knows. That's right. You could say I'm wearing a tuxedo. I, nobody I, would even. I could know. have. I guess I, I blew that. Okay. <laughs> hey. Well, um, first of all, it's just exciting to think that people are coming back to the concert halls, and and conductors and musicians are getting busy again. First of all, your story as a conductor, and then what the whole pandemic situation was like for you professionally. Yeah. So I grew up in Belgrade, Montana, a very mm-hmm. small town. Um, I actually looked it up recently. I think the population when I graduated high school was 6,000 people. So Turns out a lot of famous conductors there, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we had a little piano in our house, and I started tinkering around on it when I was like three years old and begging my parents for piano lessons, and that's kind of how it all started. Huh. Uh, yeah, and I played piano growing up through through school. I played trumpet in the bands, and I sang in the choirs. I did a lot of jazz band playing, like big band stuff, uh-huh. all the way through college. I went to college here in Washington and at Whitman College in Walla Walla. Yeah. And that's kind of where I, my first sort of encounter with conducting uh, happened in a conducting class because all music majors have to take a conducting class as part of their degree. And then you got, you got uh, some break and you ended up, you were conducting in South America for a while. Yeah. So after Whitman, I went to uh, the Peabody Institute to study conducting as a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, I was teaching for a short while at Towson University. And um, then I got, a, I got a job in Brazil. I actually had been applying to kind of everything at that point in my life, seeing what sticks. And I got that audition and I went down and it happened to line up with spring break. So it worked out uh-huh. well because I didn't have to miss work. And uh, I went down to Rio de Janeiro, had a great time, enjoyed the beaches, went into rehearsal, and you know the musicians were telling me, oh my gosh, how are you not nervous? You look so relaxed. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've just been sitting on the beach all morning. So, <laughs> And then you, how long did you conduct for the Brazilian Symphony Orchestra? Um, I was with the Brazilian Symphony Orchestra from September 2014 until April 2019, so uh-huh. almost five years. Okay, and then up to Seattle. You were the associate conductor here for three years. Yep, I've been the associate conductor here with the Seattle Symphony for the last three years. So now you earn your living as a conductor. Yes. You were the associate conductor uh here in Seattle, mm-hmm. but you also did guest appearances around the country because yeah. I was performing in Minnesota and something happened where the home conductor couldn't make the performance and yep. 
I understand just at the last minute they called you and, and you you hopped on an airplane, put on your tuxedo, and there we are on the stage together with the orchestra in uh, Twin Cities. Yeah, so I do a lot of guest conducting. If you notice, a lot of big orchestras in the United States, like things like the Minnesota Orchestra or Seattle Symphony, they have programming almost every single week, but it's not the same conductor every single week. Right. So there's usually the, the big boss who will be the music director, um, and then they'll have a staff of conductors, which will be like the associate conductor, resident conductor, um, those assistant conductor. Some orchestras have one. Some orchestras have two or three. So it's a it's sort of a gig. I mean, they say, okay, Conductor Mills, Lee, you're going to prepare for this concert, and then yeah. you take that kind of upon yourself, and you gather the orchestra together, and you decide how you're going to treat each of these pieces, and you win their respect. And, yeah. and I remember when you came to Minnesota... It was rushed because it was the last minute, and we were doing a bunch of pieces. You've mm-hmm. done them before, but you you didn't want to study by seeing how another conductor had done it. I mean, I suppose right. you could always do that. Right. To what degree does a conductor want to not just do that Beethoven symphony, but do it sort of in a new way or with a creative twist? Yeah, so like in the case in, in Minnesota, you know, in that particular case, I was going as a guest conductor, so I was invited, and there's always a balance of, how much you can do. And in this particular case, we just had one rehearsal, so there's not a lot that I can move. And in in that particular instance, I'll probably aim for doing an interpretation that's pretty standard of the pieces because if the orchestra always plays this Wagner overture, you don't want to do something that's so drastic it's going to take two hours of rehearsal just to teach the new way, you know. And And I suppose if you do something that ankles the experienced musicians in the orchestra, you you lose their respect. And I've done that before, too. Uh, You know, I've gotten to an orchestra and conducted Brahms, and the oboist just, like, put up his hands while I was conducting, which just, like, made us all stop. And he's like, this isn't how we play this. Is that right? And you have to respect (laughs) that, I suppose. um, You have to find a a diplomatic solution, right? Because So what we do is it's called a recreative art. Yeah. Because the art, the creative part happened when the composer put pen to paper and created the piece. Right. And it's our job to look at what's written there and then find an interpretation of it. And the really cool thing about it is you don't have, you know, like a painting or the, all of the plastic arts. You go in there and you see the statue or the painting or whatever it is, and that's what it is. And yeah, you know, a curator in a museum can set it with other paintings and change right. the setting or set up your mindset for it or put a different description by it. But the work of art itself is always going to be the same. Whereas when you come into a concert, even two concerts that I conduct back-to-back from one day to the next, it's going to be different. So you're co-creating. You're, you're creating on yeah, top I, of the creating with the endorsement of the... I wouldn't think the composer wants you to robotically read the paper and just do it like a... Correct. ...like a predictable way. Yeah. When you're working, do you ever just think, wow, I wish Tchaikovsky could hear this? What, you know, when Sometimes. You're... You know, I think about that a lot. So to get back to your first part of the question, uh, when we're studying music... Um, a lot of times we read a lot of letters from composers to conductors and they're saying, oh, I was at the, you know, great job with the premiere, but, you know, this middle section really should go a little bit faster. And we get little hints about that. And composers write a lot in their scores. Some of them don't write anything in their scores. They just put the notes in there. Um, some of them write a ton. And like Mahler would write a paragraph for every measure saying like, oh, in this one you have to go a little bit slower at the very beginning and then slowly get t- a tiny bit faster bit by bit until you get to this tempo. You know, it's like very descriptive. Have you actually done that with a living composer, with something you're performing? Um, yeah, I do work a lot with living composers. And, and um, in the study process, when I'm before we get to the orchestra, I ask a lot of questions when yeah. they're live. You know, we can email or call or I'll 
send them a, a scan them a page, you know, and circle something. And I'll are be they like, receptive? Hey, Do they? Are they say, yeah, they love it. They, they must like it because mm-hmm. you're re- you're really sensitive to their vision and their creative spirit. Exactly. I mean, that's what we're always trying to do. We're trying to get as close to the mission or the intent of the uh, of God, the composer. Exciting. It's so exciting. Maestro Lee Mills has been an associate conductor with the Seattle Symphony for the last three years. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we look at what it's like to work with orchestras in a variety of cities as a guest conductor. You can find a list of his upcoming concerts and videos and photos of Lee in action on his website, leemillsconductor.com. You know, a lot of people who have never been in an orchestra or or a a symphony, they look at the conductor and they just kind of think, well, doesn't a metronome do that? You know, you're just like, here's the downbeat. This is three, four time. But uh, I would imagine there's more to it than that. What, oh, yeah. What, what do you do? I would say that that particular aspect, being the metronome, is, is probably the least important thing that we do as a conductor. And in fact, I would Related say, to that would be how fast or slow you're going to interpret the piece, I suppose. Correct. But, you know, once we start it... Yeah. With a professional orchestra, they don't need a conductor up there showing them, you know, one, two, three, four, unless it's a really crazy contemporary piece of music that's constantly changing yeah. time signatures and everything. Right. Um, you know, they don't really need that. Uh, you do need it, you know, when you're at uh, in some amateur orchestras or high school or sure. college level. Oh, yeah. Then, but by the time you get to, like, Seattle Symphony, they don't need anybody up there to be able to play together. So what I always think about is what am I am I doing up here if I'm not adding value? So whatever I do has to add some sort of value to what the musicians are doing. And a big part of that is taking, like you said, we do interpret the tempos. We set up, you know, oh, we're going to do it this fast uh, or this slow. Mm -hmm. So you have 80 musicians on stage. Each of them has their sheet of music in there. You can get 80 completely different interpretations of the piece out there. Oh, yeah. And And you got to get the team together. It's just like a a, a sport team on the field. It's got to be working as a team. Exactly. And I I love it when the conductor brings out the the flutes or or has the bass take it down a little bit. Well, and you know what's really interesting about that? Um, We do, you know, change the sort of equalize the orchestra, bring out more flutes or down the uh-huh. bass. But another thing that we do that that I do am very conscious of when I'm conducting is when I'm bringing out, so to say, the, the bassoon or something, mm-hmm. it's not always just for the bassoon. There's sometimes when I'll look towards the bassoon and gesture towards them, and it's not because they're doing anything wrong or right. they need to change anything, but it's because I, as the conductor, want to draw your attention as the listener to what the bassoon's doing. There you go. Because I've, I've had the joy of watching you from the orchestra, yeah, and you yeah. are very balletic and and <laughs> athletic and uh, physical on stage in a in a beautiful way. Thank you. you. You must be aware that that's part of the visual joy of yes. seeing live music. So yeah, I t- totally agree. I had one teacher tell me about the conductor. If you think about a conductor from a physics perspective, like a piece of metal that energy flows through, that's what a conductor is. And I'm connecting the audience with the orchestra. So. Huh. All of that energy from the orchestra is focused on, you know, they're all look, I'm right in the middle of everything. So they're all looking at me and the audience is looking at me as well to connect with the orchestra. So it goes both ways. And the audience is looking for my cues, you know, to think about, yeah, sure, the violin melody is really obvious, but did you hear this other line that's going on in the cellos? And I draw attention to something that might not be so obvious. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Maestro Lee Mills, the associate conductor at the Seattle Symphony for the last three years. And uh, Lee is sharing with us a little insight into appreciating classical music. Lee, this is a travel show, and uh, you can travel around the country and enjoy classical music. 
Would you just guess how many how many concert halls have you worked in or just enjoyed a concert hall? In, oh concert? goodness, concert halls probably over thirty that uh-huh. I've worked in. Um, You've actually conducted in thirty concert yeah, halls probably. around the country. So how are they different? I mean, are there any ones that are actually worth the destination? If you went to to Boston, would you look forward to going to the classic hall? Oh, yeah, uh, Symphony Hall, hall is, is Symphony incredible. Hall. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really beautiful sound in there. You know, Carnegie Hall, of course, yeah. is such an incredible sound. And it's really impressive to me because these halls were built before we had computer-aided drawing and all of these, you know, computers that figure everything out to make the acoustics, the acoustic so the, yeah. like perfection. Um, you know, Carnegie Hall was built way before that, and it is an incredible acoustic. So it's really interesting to think. And then, of course, you have, you know, the more modern halls. Uh, the one that comes to mind most quickly is um, uh, Los Angeles Walt Disney Concert Hall, Walt which Disney, is a spectacular yeah. hall. And yeah. um, that hall is actually quite. I find it quite loud. You uh-huh. know, and it might just be because it's so much wood in there that was it's so it reflective. was that an intentional thing? Did they want it to be more, so, yeah. more um, bracing kind of music? It's like some pianos are brighter than others. A, yeah. a trumpet is brighter than a cornet. Yeah, I don't know if I would use the word bracing, but I definitely mm-hmm. think that's part of the intention is to make the sound more immediate. You know, yeah. it's, it's very that's a present. Good way to put it. Immediate, um, yeah. But here in Seattle, we have Benaroya Hall, which uh-huh. is also I would definitely rank among the top five concert halls in the country, uh-huh. uh, and it's quite different. You know, it doesn't have the same sort of in-your-face immediacy of, of Walt Disney Concert Hall, uh-huh. but it has this very, very lovely uh, reverberance in it, and it just is a very warm, kind of softer And you uh, feel touch. that on stage, and would somebody in the audience feel it as well? Oh, yeah. You can travel around the country and enjoy the great halls. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also travel around the country and um, take advantage of music festivals. Oh, yeah. As a music lover, a classical music lover, yeah. which ones would you recommend people have on their radar? Well, I mean, there's a really big ones. Definitely, you've got Tanglewood, which is the Boston Symphony. Um, they do their summer season out at Tanglewood, which uh-huh. has a beautiful uh, concert hall, Seiji Ozawa Hall, and it's all made out of wood. And the back of it actually is just a, like a giant airplane hangar door it just opens up completely, and you can sit out on the lawn then and listen to the concert if you're not inside the hall. Now, that but as a, as summer. an aficionado, as a conductor, as somebody who really cares about the quality, do you feel a little bit like you're compromising the the sound experience to get the loveliness of outdoors? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, in that particular hall, it's like you can also sit in the hall So during the concert, you know, but if you don't want to sit in the hall, you can sit out on the lawn, and that's just increasing access, you know, sort of democratizing the access to the music. And then you've got Aspen, which is in Aspen, Colorado, and that happens in a big, giant tent, and I would say that's not my favorite acoustic, but it's kind of fun to be out there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Maestro Lee Mills. He's been the associate conductor for the Seattle Symphony and traveled all over the world conducting. Lee, you know, I want to talk for a minute about the social relevance of live classical music because when we did our concert, it was socially relevant music in the 1800s, like fortissimo, you know. Today, is there still social relevance to classical music like there was in the day of Wagner and Verdi and Shostakovich? Oh, that's a good question. First of all, let me just talk about social relevance of live music in general. Um, If you take a concert hall and you've packed it full of people, you've got 2,500 people sitting in a concert hall in complete silence going through this emotional journey together, and it doesn't matter if they're Republican, Democrat, Christian, Jewish, agnostic, whatever anybody is, it doesn't matter if they're Seahawks fans or if they're Rams fans or whatever it is, 
they're going to sit in that concert hall and everybody's going to go on a very similar emotional journey. Everybody brings their own personal history and traumas and experiences, and so it'll be very personal. But at the same time, this sort of ship is sailing through this whole journey and everybody's on it together. And I don't know of any other um, thing except for live performance that brings people together in such a way. Like even a sporting arena, you've got the two halves, you know, one side cheering for the other. But here everybody's all on the same journey in the same boat. And I think that in and of itself is social relevance. You know, it's that is. a community that we're building. It reminds people that in so many ways we are in this together and yeah. we are alike and we can be emotionally and spiritually involved in the same thing at the same time and just for pure joy. Right. Now, about specific pieces, I think maybe, you know, you have these, the Wagners and the Verdis and all of these Shostakovich composers that really influenced politics in their time. In their day. I mean, they were huge superstars. Yeah. And I think in classical music, there's just, there's so much competition right now for our attention with our phones and Instagram and TV shows and all of that stuff that it doesn't have the same weight as it used to, but there are still composers out there that are composing pieces that are very poignant, that really are social commentary that we should be paying attention to. That's what I think is an important thing to remember. In the 1800s, before phonographs, before radio, before moving images, really, it was a a life highlight to see an orchestra play. I mean, normally you'd have to go together in a salon and hear a piano and a violin yeah. in a small town. Yeah. Candle it. You know, I'm, yeah. I love those old pianos that still have where the candelabra was. Exactly. And it reminds me, people would gather around and have salon music. Well, they would. They'd be like every every Sunday afternoon over at, you know, the Mendelssohn house or something. Yeah. There'd be this huge salon for like 200 people and they would just be and that would hanging be out and playing that music. That would be it. And today, the classical music is, it's up against some pretty tough competition. But just for a final thought, Lee Mills, um, is classical music, live classical music, endangered? I'm so happy to see a young, vital, charismatic conductor like you, because I would think that we need that. Why does live classical music matter? I feel like when we do something, you know, just to invigorate the appreciation of live classical music, we're doing a good thing. Why does it matter? Well, it's, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this social experience of everybody being together and, and being one sort of community going through this emotional experience of hearing live music together, mm-hmm. that is a real community bonding event, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I don't exactly believe in the narrative about classical music as in danger per se. I do think it always takes active, you know, we've got to keep it going and we've got yeah. to keep supporting it. And classical music institutions at the same time, they have to, on the reverse side, they have to make sure that whatever we're providing to our community is a value that we're that the community wants. You know, uh, to use a business word, what's our value proposition for the community? You know, yeah. it's not just, we don't just exist here to be supported. We exist here to support as well. And I think a lot of people who have never been in a concert hall to hear a symphony play, they, they might be blown away by how how engaging it is. Oh, they will be. It's 100%. just, I mean, it's, you take somebody to a baseball stadium who hasn't been to a baseball stadium for 30 years, they're blown yeah. away by what's going on. And exactly. I think the same thing's going on in the concert hall. Yeah. Lee Mills, thank you so much. I'll say bravo, maestro. Thank and you. And best wishes with your career, and I hope that we get to perform together again Oh, yes, soon. me too. Thank All you right. very much. Thank you. Take care. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Garrett Pittman at WWNO New Orleans and to Gretchen Strauch for reading our listener travel haiku. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. 
Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.